Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jonathan Goldrath. He is managing partner at 317 Opportunities. We're going to talk to him about not only being an investor, but actually an operator, having worked with several cannabis companies and been through the whole process of licensing, getting the funds, putting together the business, putting the operations. And so Jonathan can speak to a lot of different facets of the cannabis industry and how the industry has changed and how the different markets work. So I'm excited for this. It's always fun to talk to people who have been through quite a bit in cannabis, have learned a little bit, and are actually uh, you know, looking at the future and where the opportunities are. Some interesting things going on in the cannabis world these days, post-election with several states going, voting ballot initiatives to bring in adult use, recreational use. And so it's really kind of driving, I think, the next phase of, of cannabis. So excited to have this conversation. With that, Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Excited to be here. Yeah, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Let's do a little background first and give people, you know, both professionally what you had been doing prior to 
cannabis, and then in cannabis, I, I know you've worked with several different aspects of the market, both on the operating and the investing side. So give us a little of the story, and, th- and then we can dig into some of our topics. Sure. So I spent most of my career probably doing the thing that's diametrically opposed to, to cannabis. I, I was an investor in distressed debt, so investing in dead and dying companies and industries. I did that for about a little bit over a decade mostly at a firm called Fortress Investment Group in New York, San Francisco, and then London, mostly investing in Europe from 2012 to 2015, and then a, a short stint at a fund called Wingspan Investment Management. That fund, fortunately or unfortunately, was winding down in 2016, and I think I was, I was a little bit fatigued with investing in the dead and dying companies and wanted to, to do something with growth and a little bit more excitement. As such, looked at a wide range of industries, everything from VR to solar to cannabis. Cannabis really stood out. I'd never seen anything like that before with venture-like growth, proven revenue model, and real barriers to entry depending on where you were actually operating. My partner, who was actually the head trader at Wingspan at the time, grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was launching their inaugural medical cannabis program. They were going to award 12 grower processor licenses, which we thought was really attractive for a state of 13 million people. We decided to apply for one ourselves. A lot of people hire lawyers or app writing consultants to do this for them. We thought a real key to differentiation was doing it ourselves and finding the best of the best for a team. And we submitted our application in March of 2017 after a number of months working on it. Mm-hmm. We knew that um, it was going to take three months to grade them. I, I decided to wait out and, and see if we had a chance, although with 177 applicants, your, your odds are slim. My partner got a job because he figured the odds would work against us. So, <laughs> yeah. Lo and behold, in June, we were we were actually successful. We were placed number five out of 177 applicants. We were only, nice. one of only two groups who were not multi-state operators at the time to win. And we hit the ground running and really never looked back. We were the second guys to be up and running. We built a 42,000-square-foot facility in four months. We had a state-mandated deadline of six, and we we really wanted to beat that. Mm -hmm. And then we went on to win licenses in Ohio, Utah, Pennsylvania again in their second round, and it's it's, it's really been been a whirlwind since since, – Expanding the businesses, we've, we've um, monetized some of them. We sold the Pennsylvania Grower Processor, which was our largest holding about two years ago. And as that capital's come back, we returned to our roots as credit investors and really started focusing on lending money within the space, but also becoming capital partners and true partners for, for the people that we, we invest in and, and helping advise businesses as well through, one, our advisory business, 317 Opportunities, and then two, a recent fund that we started as a permanent capital vehicle called Focus Growth Asset Management. Got it. And what do you think allowed you to score well in that initial um, license um, submission? I mean, was there anything that you saw about how you approached it or, you know, what you did that ranked you well? You know, I think it's two things. One, I think it was real, you know, attention to detail. And I know that that doesn't sound unique, but when you're when you're going through 300 pages of a statute and, and corresponding regulations, it's very easy to get tired and gloss over it. Conversely, you have to make it fun for the reviewer. 
Although, <laughs> you know, when, the, when they're reading 177 of these applications, each one's several hundred pages long, you, you have yeah. to figure out a way to, to, aside from just actually crafting something that corresponds to the regs, yeah. you, have to, you have to figure out a narrative of people, you know, people are following nar- narratives, especially with such dry subject matter. You have to figure out a way to present it to them in a, a coherent and, you know, frankly, exciting form. Mm-hmm. And then other than that, I, I think we really took the time to find people that stood out and were unique in the industry. We didn't just look for people with cannabis expertise. We looked for a lot of people we knew from other fields like commercial agriculture, or pharmaceuticals that had skills that we thought would take what was probably at the time I'll refer to not as cannabis 1.0, but maybe, you know, cannabis one and a half to, to, <laughs> to 2.0 and, and really institutionalize or start to institutionalize the industry. And you know, I think, I yeah. think we, we were a big part of that 2.0 wave. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like in the beginning, you weren't quite sure if you were, you were going to get this license, but with, I guess once you got the license, did you really see this as, you know, a multi-entity, multi-state endeavor that you were, you were starting down? Yeah. I think once we saw that, you know, we actually had a chance at winning what we call the regulatory lotto in the, these, they're merit-based applications, but luck has to be a fair bit of it. And you have to yeah. be confident in, in communicating your skill and message. Once we figured out that we could get through that hurdle, which and, until we got graded was really a black box us, we looked at our, in natural field of operations, we looked at our, our the field of competitors and there were, were really world-class guys who ran who ran what now became publicly traded operations across the country, but there were still a lot of people in there who had really no business being in this industry. They, they, um, I think, some cases were lucky. In some cases, they were cannabis 1.0 people. In some cases, they thought they had wanted to do this, but were really in it for a quick flip of a business. And I think if you had the perseverance and determination to stick it through, there, you know, there's a big opportunity on this, the other side for for this. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the, the things you learned early in setting up your the Pennsylvania business. What were the takeaways, and how did you carry that forward? I was surprised um, in learning that. Uh, we part of the objective here or path forward would be building the plane as we were flying it alongside all of the other stakeholders in the industry. I was naive in thinking that, you know, there's a way to do it and we were going to follow a specific path that would be dictated to us by stakeholder groups like the Department of Health, who was our regulator, patients, physicians. But in truth, all of us were kind of in the same position, us building a company, but with everyone else building an industry together. And it took me a little while to realize that the process was going to be as collaborative as it was. But once we were there, it was, it was, it was really rewarding. And um, you know, a big part of that learning was creating a forum for stakeholders to all buy in, us to gather that feedback, take that feedback put it back into our products and the way we do things and then, you know, work with the regulators and and crafting statute or regulations and and making sure that the program has room to, to succeed and run. Yeah. And what um, I'm always curious for folks that have, you know, coming out of other professions or have, you know, fairly developed, you know, skill sets in, in other domains, you know, coming into cannabis, what were the things that you were able to kind of leverage or apply from, you know, your previous professional experience, you know, that worked well? What were the things that you thought you were going to be able to transfer that didn't? And then what things did you were just like, oh, my gosh, this is totally new. I'm going to have to figure this out as I go from a just from a leadership point of view. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from a from a skill set that was already existing standpoint, the stuff that transferred well was definitely just, you know, blocking and tackling, like really, really the attention to detail stuff that I mentioned before and, and, you know, making investments in my prior training. You know, we, we, we take a we take a quote from 
I think more of the, the carpentry industry, but it's measure twice, cut once. It's yeah. really just making sure that everything's okay. You know, we're, we're dealing with medicine for immune compromised patients yeah. and a license that really isn't ours. The state's lending it to us and we take that responsibility super seriously. So just checking all the boxes twice. In terms of, you know, in terms of stuff that didn't translate well or took some learnings, yeah. it was very different for me to go from, you know, frankly, the bubble I lived in, in distressed debt finance, people who all had amazing degrees and were some of the smartest people I ever worked with, yeah. but lived in, in that big city finance bubble to moving to rural Pennsylvania and working with people who were super skilled in their own right, but came from a very different background and diversity of perspective. And that, you know, that frankly took some time for me to work on from a communication and leadership perspective. Yeah, uh, I can imagine sort of different different cultural context, uh, operating context. Yeah, and it's also, you know, just trying to use the golden rule and put yourself in the shoes of other people and just understand the challenges that they deal with. I mean, I sat back and thought, oh, it's growing a plant. How hard it, could it be? I mean, this is, you know, it is, you would say it's not rocket science. It is it is extremely <laughs> difficult to do. Yeah. And I, I definitely underestimated that going in. I have a world of respect for the people that do it well. Yeah. And how did you uh, how, how did you sort of build out that capability, find those leaders? What, what was the process for finding the talent that you needed to, to make the business work? When we were really hustling in it, bootstrapping it for the application process. I mean, we were, we were scouring LinkedIn for people who we thought had um, relevant experience to calling people who I knew had been in experienced states and asking them who they thought were the best. Um, we spent a lot of time out in Colorado looking for it. And we, we also spoke to some of our vendors who had recommendations in the field of commercial agriculture. We went into this with the, with the general philosophy that we were going to combine people in established fields like commercial agriculture or pharmaceuticals with people who had real cannabis experience because we didn't want to downplay that learning curve with cannabis-specific stuff. I think it ultimately was greater than we thought it was, and I, I can go into that in a second. But even from the beginning, I thought we wanted to marry the two. So we had found, for example, our initial grower worked at a Connecticut grow. I'm in a junior position. We were really looking for hungry people who wanted to be leaders in a new organization. We had we've recruited her to be our co-head of cultivation. And then the other side, our, our greenhouse vendor introduced us to a gentleman who he had worked with through commercial agriculture for years, growing everything from ornamentals to vegetables and greenhouses, but in more of a traditional sense. And we married those two things together out of the gate. That gentleman was a consultant in the beginning. We then went on to hire someone with a similar background, a PhD, grew ornamental flowers under 10 acres of glass in Michigan. It was interesting, though, you know, for someone who had decades of experience in commercial agriculture, going from running 10 acres of glass, it was, I'd say, a large challenge for that person to, to come in and grow 10,000 square feet of cannabis. Yeah. And, and what, it was this because of the, the different dynamics of the plant, the context, the different outcomes you're looking for? Where did you see the challenges when it came to, you know, getting people focused on cannabis versus these other industries? So I think it was, it was two things and they were related. One is that this plant is so susceptible and sensitive to its environment. Mm -hmm. So anything that comes into that environment from, you know, small pests to 
the wrong type of humidity or heat really affects the way that, that it, it grows and lives. And then that problem is compounded by the fact that we are under such uh, regulatory scrutiny and for the right reasons mm-hmm. that the, the amount of tools we have at our disposal to combat those negative impacts are, are very limited. In a normal commercial agriculture setting, for stuff that we put into our body every day, i.e. food, you would have a host of pesticides or fungicides that you could use and have been approved as safe by the Department of Ag or, or the FDA. In cannabis, because I think of the fear of its newness, the fact that a lot of our patients are immune compromised, and frankly, the fact that a lot of these statutes are, are, are written by people who might not necessarily have agricultural experience, the, they take the extreme approach of, of very limited amount of resources you have to combat these things. And that that changes over time as you work with your regulators, as I described previously. But in the beginning, it's, you know, it's, it's entering a, a fist fight with both hands tied behind your back. <laughs> and what, um, so once you kind of, you know, the school of hard knocks on, on, on Pennsylvania, I guess, how did you look at the other markets? When and how did you decide to look for all the licenses? How did you choose the states? Tell us a little bit about kind of your strategy for expanding. Yeah, the first the first thing we needed to do is get Pennsylvania on its right footing. So that's having the people in place. And then as a general check the box, to do our fiduciary for our investors. We had to get that operation cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. Once that was done, some of it was just opportunity set in front of us. So looking at states that had legislation pending or applications that were about to come up due to legislation that was passed. Mm-hmm. And then the other the other part of it was just looking at the regulations and legislation to see if it was an operating environment we actually wanted to be in. And that mm-hmm. was, is it highly regulated? Are there limited licenses? What's the supply-demand dynamics? And does all of those things together allow a business to be sustainable and succeed? The first one we ultimately went for that was set up very similar to Pennsylvania was Ohio. And we won one of the first seven grower, one of the first seven processor licenses there. And what, um, I mean, I guess as you as you looked at the other states, I mean, what were the states that you weren't so keen on or, or didn't look so good and why were they not as attractive for you? The Pacific Northwest is a prime example. It was, it was open season, you know, the Wild West. To, to use a common term, licenses were not limited in any in any form, and we saw price fall precipitously in, in places like Washington or Oregon. I think that's a situation which you might see one large player win, but we thought in places where we could be one of a handful with states that have a similar population, if not if not larger, it's just a much more favorable dynamic and, and much more worth it for us to spend our time on. We also just thought, you know, when you think about a large state with only a handful of licenses and the relationship with your regulator, there's a lot of scrutiny on you, right? They only have to watch a few guys. And, and as mm-hmm. such, we refer to those states as highly regulated. That causes us to be in a position where we there's a higher bar for us to perform and be compliant. And we like holding ourselves to that standard because ultimately when things open up, you're going to be dealing with the FDA and that's the standard we want to hold ourselves to. We don't think things are getting looser from a regulatory perspective. We think it's only going in one direction. Oh, interesting. So from your point of view, it was a good early bar to kind of achieve because it was going to help you later with the general strategic assumption that it was it was going to be a highly regulated industry in the future. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, in every state you can talk about being held to that bar, it, it helps you win these applications because, you know, you're putting your bona fides out there when you're talking about your processes and, and yeah. 
compliance. Yeah. And so tell us about divesting from the Pennsylvania entity and that decision and, and how it's kind of changed your course. Yeah, I think this was another part where my previous experience in distressed debt was um, a big a big thing that helped us out. We we had seen a lot of industries that were commoditized, had a lot of money pour into them and supply increase, really take it take it hard on the back end of that. Pennsylvania, I think, was in a place where the law had the ability to expand supply a great deal. There were 12 licenses initially granted, and the law provided for up to 25. Around the time we were selling, they were launching a process to issue those other 13 licenses. So we were in a situation where we saw supply at least doubling. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we saw a lot of the existing 12 expanding capacity. The other, the other thing from a capital markets perspective that, that scared us in terms of what could happen with that supply increase was that right around that time, we started to see a lot of our peers in Pennsylvania and across the country go public in Canada through reverse takeover yeah. transactions. Yeah. That, you know, that opened up an enormous amount of capital for them. We weren't quite of size where we could do that. And we kind of realized this was going to, one, compound the supply dynamic that I talked about, and two, drive a huge roll-up in consolidation yeah. within, within the industry, right? And we, we, we needed to participate that in one way or another. Either we were going to be consolidators or we were going to have to sell that operation to someone that was. Yeah. All of this said, hey, why don't you just see what, relative to the projections you showed your investors, you could mark this asset for. We, we went through that process and the numbers we got back, and I think this is driven by the fact that people finally had access to public capital, were much larger than what our projections were. And, yeah. and we thought to do the right thing for all of our stakeholders, the decision was to sell. Yeah. yeah. And how, um, so then how did that change your course? Because divesting there, I mean, it obviously gave you some capital, it you know positioned you a little bit differently. How did you figure out where you wanted to play in the cannabis market at that point? I think, you know, I think we, we, we had time for reflection in terms of one, you know, what are our skill sets? And then two, what are, you know, what are the opportunities generally in the industry? We realized there were some markets that were still going to have favorable supply demand dynamics where there weren't more licenses to be issued like in Pennsylvania. Ohio's, uh, sorry, not Ohio. Utah is a good example of that. There were 14 issued and that's what statute, that's what statute uh, allows for as a maximum. And then we also just realized as part of this consolidation, a lot of people were still going to need a massive amount of capital and there just wasn't that amount of capital out there. In particular, there's no debt available at the time we started to think about it for cannabis companies for all intents and purposes. And we had a strong background and skill set in lending from our previous careers. So yeah. we looked at that and thought, you know, we know 75% of the guys in the industry because we either competed against them, bought product from them, sold product to them. We had a lot of peers and investors who were interested in the type of returns that credit got you, and we knew how to underwrite and, and issue these types of investments. So why was debt not available for, for cannabis companies at that point? Like, give us a little insight on how the capital was structured and, and why you know, debt and equity availability was, was different at that point. Sure. You know, I think most of the investor base were high net worth individuals and family offices who saw cannabis as something that was a you know a generational 
multiple of money type opportunity for them. They were really looking for huge, huge returns. Some of this was compounded by what we saw in Canada, right? People made 100x their money. I think their view, and it might be right, might be wrong, was if I'm going to take a huge risk in doing something that's federally illegal in the US, I want to be really paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, credit returns are much less than that, right? People aren't going to make 100x their money. They might get a, a return that we think is really attractive, mm-hmm. 20% per year or something of that nature, but there really wasn't a base of people who were interested in that product given, I think, the regulatory situation at the time. Yeah. The other side of people who would naturally lend were, were prohibited by law from doing it. They are, they're large funds whose fund stocks say they can't do anything that's federally illegal, or they're, they're banks that also, if they're federally chartered, could not lend. So I think it was a dynamic, the regulatory situation, and then just who is in that regulatory situation, and then just who is investing in what their target would Yeah, still federally illegal. I mean, is this more money has come in in different ways, or is this starting to open up for folks? What is the state of you know, access to equity and, and debt capital? It's changed. You know, people on the equity side, a number of those companies have gone public. And I think that's, you know, that's opened up retail equity money for them, which is a huge source of capital. There's a pocket of real estate investors who have come in, and it's probably our biggest competition on the lending side of things, who are doing sale leaseback transactions, which are basically them buying an owned building by a cannabis company and then leasing it back to them, which unlocks a big source of capital for them. Mm-hmm. And then slowly but surely, we're seeing more and more people, I'd say on the, the fringes of the credit world, come into the lending space. Part of that is just driven by realizational opportunity. And I also just think part of that is driven by the fact that the real risk from a regulatory perspective is not what some people perceived it to be a few years ago. And that's by the fact that the Trump administration really never cracked down on it. You know, four years ago when I stepped into this, people were scared to death of Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also that, you know, with every passing year, we see more and more states continue to legalize, which I think just culturally and politically makes it makes enforcement from a federal perspective a lot less palatable. Yeah. And, you know, we just finished this election cycle. <laughs> you know, we're still waiting for final conclusions on some things, but it's pretty, you know, it looks like, you know, we've got a new administration. We have several, I think five states that passed ballot initiatives to legalize adult use cannabis. Where do you see the U.S. market going? Any kind of predictions or any general trends that you see happening over the next you know, three, four, five years as as we continue to grow the cannabis industry? Yeah, I'd, I'd say this. I don't think that we're going to see federal legalization from a wholesale perspective uh, anytime soon. I think we're going to continue to see states' rights being respected. And a lot of that is, I think, fear um, from a from a from a federal government perspective, but also just um, it's these are big economies for states, and I think if you started to see wholesale federal legalization across border trade from a state's perspective, we would see a, a lot of businesses cease to exist. Where in, in particular in places where it's not economic to cultivate, and I, I think no one wants to put their foot down on what's been such a big boon for, for certain states. I think we're about to see a huge wave of legalization across the East Coast and in particular in the Northeast. And this is really going to be driven by New Jersey. New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the nation. And everyone who I know in this tri-state area either has a business partner or colleague that lives there. They go on vacation there. They drive through the state. 
And with this passing ballot initiative, we're going to see legalization there implemented in this coming year. And I think when people see that, you know, this isn't the end of the world and it's not going to precipitate a, a zombie apocalypse, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. a lot easier for neighboring states to push their own initiatives. That's also, I think, reinforced by the fact that neighboring states don't want to see tax revenue go to New Jersey as just yeah. people cross the border to go there to buy product. And frankly, everyone needs it from an economic perspective right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and, and we're, I think we're all anticipating there's going to be a line of dispensaries at the end of the George Washington Bridge here, you know, as we get this market up and running. Yeah. yeah. And so tell us what you're focused on. You, you mentioned you're putting together a fund. You've got the advisory, the operational advisory group. What are some of the things you're working on that people should know about? Yeah, I think 317 Opportunities, which is my advisory business, is still looking for good local partners in states where yet to see the launch of the medical market or recreational market. We're, we're true believers in partnering with local people and helping local entrepreneurs find success within the cannabis industry, similar to the way we did four years ago. We have a lot of learnings there. As, as part of the lending business, which works hand in glove with the advisory business, I'm somewhat limited in what I, we can say, but we're in the fundraising process for a private equity vehicle that primarily focus on lending within the cannabis space. I, I still think, although we're seeing more people, more and more people step into that space, that we're early days and the demand for capital is going to continue to outpace the supply by leaps and bounds. So we're really excited about continuing to actually fund the dreams of entrepreneurs there and finding interesting opportunities as the, as the, the industry evolves. Excellent. Really a pleasure talking with you today, Jonathan. If people want to find out more about you and, and the fund and the operational and, and 317, what's the best way to get that information? You can go to jonathangoldrath.com. My first name is spelled a little weird, though. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N. You can blame my parents. G-O-L-D-R-A-T-H.com. Wow, that's probably the best way to to get in touch with me or uh, under the same name at LinkedIn as well. Great. I'll make sure that the link to the website and to your LinkedIn are um, in the show notes so people can get that information. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.